I often resonate with the struggles of the 18th century poet and hymn writer, William Cooper. Cooper struggled with depression for much of his life, something which I often wrestle with myself. I was reminded of his life this week through the writings of James Montgomery Boyce on the Book of Romans. Cooper had a rough childhood. He lost his mother when he was quite young. He was sent off to a boarding school where he was constantly bullied, picked on, beaten by other kids. Later on in, in life, the darkness of depression suffocated him to the point where he attempted to end his life on at least two occasions. By 25, he was committed to an asylum to a psychiatric ward, a mental hospital. God's providence was really not seen in his life at that point. The darkness just wouldn't seem to lift. Well, in a day when you would normally be treated quite harshly in an asylum, you would normally be cast aside and given horrible treatment, Cooper's doctor was a man named Dr. Cotton, who was a follower of Christ, who introduced Cooper to the gospel. At this point, Cooper was quite troubled about his sin. He famously cried out as Boyce quotes him in his book saying, My sin, my sin, for some fountain would you open for my cleansing. But see, the problem was before then he couldn't find such a fountain. But now in hearing the good news about Jesus from his own doctor, he found out about the only fountain that could wash away his sins. And then sitting in the room, he opened up his Bible, and do you know what the first two verses of his Bible that he read? Well, it's the two verses for our sermon this morning. Upon reading those verses, Cooper writes, Immediately I received strength to believe in the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shown on me. In that moment, Cooper saw the sufficiency of Christ's death for him, his pardon in Christ's blood. And he writes, It was then that I believed and received the gospel. As he read these verses. So friend, if you're here, you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that that's been my prayer for you this past week. That's what I pray, prayed for you late last night. Was that upon reading and hearing the word preached on these two verses. That you would turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. That you would have the same joy that Cooper found. And that you would be a Christian. Cooper said afterwards he could have died with gratitude and joy. He was so overwhelmed in that moment. Later, in response to his conversion, he wrote of that fountain. He wrote of that fountain that he had found. And now, 250 years later, we still sing of this fountain. Words that we just sang a few moments ago. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. 
Oh, church, those are beautiful words. There is a fountain. There is a way of salvation. Friends, this is the best news, and Romans 3 shows us the way. We're going to be speeding up the pace today. Last week we did eight words, we did half a verse, so today we're going to do two verses. Do you think we can do it? Buckle up your seatbelt, we're going to go fast. Two verses, and I want to read these verses again for you. I want to start back at verse 21. Mukami read the whole section. We've been looking at verses 21 through 31 over these past several weeks. I want to start back at verse uh, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through, now these are our verses from last week, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Those were our eight words last week. That good news that we are redeemed through the death of Jesus Christ. But now here are the two verses for today, starting in verse 25. So through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So those are our two verses for this morning. And we have four points. So if you're taking notes, this will help you just with an outline of where we are headed. So point number one, propitiation. We will see a propitiation, then a demonstration, then a substitution, and a conviction. Propitiation, demonstration, substitution, and conviction. So first, number one, propitiation. Now we've seen in the previous verses that salvation is a free gift. It's freely offered to us and it's freely received. We also saw last week that while salvation is free to us, it's actually expensive to God. Free to us, but we found that our Salvation comes through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus' death on the cross. So now today we're going to see something else about Jesus, that God the Father put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you can define the word propitiation for me today. Okay, I'm not going not to ask you if you know that word. That's a big word. It's not a word that we normally use in our everyday gospel presentations when we share our faith with someone. It's not the, the everyday word that maybe comes in our minds when we're even praying to God or even thankful for his salvific gifts. It's not our everyday language even in just our Christian conversations. So let me, let me help us here with this word propitiation it's a very powerful word it's a word that has so much meaning it's a beautiful word so here's how we can define it propitiation means to satisfy divine wrath okay it is to satisfy the wrath of a deity the turning of god's wrath away aside. And you may have noticed in the songs that we've been singing today, a lot of songs about God's wrath being turned away. This is what propitiation is. It may not 
be a word in our songs, but we've been singing about this truth all morning. R.C. Sproul is helpful here. He writes, it's to satisfy the demands of justice. In biblical terms, he's speaking of propitiation, it means to satisfy the demands of God's wrath. God places sin and evil under his judgment and decrees that he is going to pour out his wrath upon it. In New Testament terms, what we are saved from is God. We are saved by God, from God, from the wrath that is to come. Propitiation satisfies completely the demands of God's wrath and justice, which is what the cross was all about. Christ, as our substitute, took upon himself the wrath that we deserve to pay the penalty that was due for our guilt to satisfy the demands of God's justice. In his work of propitiation, Jesus did something on a vertical level, something with respect to the Father, satisfying the justice of God for us. It's a long quote, but I think a helpful one. Do you see what Dr. Sproul is saying here? God saves us from himself. It's a radical thought. God satisfied his wrath through the death of his own son, Jesus. This is what we talked about last week. This is beautiful news. We deserve death, but Jesus took our place. Now, we don't like talking much about the wrath of God. But apart from God's saving grace, we all stand under God's wrath. Why? Well, because of our sins. We said last week that even just one sin against the holy God, we can't be in God's presence lest God would cease to be perfect and holy and just. Payment must come. Well, as one author has said, it's not just that God hates the sin and loves the sinner. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Okay, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Well, unless you're in Christ, that's not true. God hates the sinner. The sinner stands under God's Wrath. God actually hates the sinner. His wrath rests upon him. Remember, God saved us while we were yet his enemies. God saved us while we were yet sinners. Our sin deserved death and judgment. It was a complete and utter and total rebellion. God's righteous anger, God's wrath, God's judgment is on us. And it's in that very condition, though, that God saves us. That's the paradox of the gospel. As Martin Luther put it, God loved us even as he hated us. Well, just think about this for a moment. God loved us even as he hated us. God loved us while we were his enemies. God loved us while we were sinners in rebellion. God loved us when we didn't deserve his love, when there was nothing great about us to earn it or to gain acceptance for it. No, friends, we can't soften God's wrath. If we soften God's wrath, we diminish his justice. If we soften God's wrath, we minimize and diminish Christ's work on the cross. But there's a temptation for us to do this. Maybe it's because we have non-believing friends. Maybe even as we share with non-believers, perhaps we're tempted to present what we consider is a more gentle gospel. We hold back the more difficult parts. It's hard to tell people that God's wrath is upon them. That God is loving, but he's also just. That God saves, but he also judges. This seems unkind. How could a loving God condemn people he created to eternal judgment? Now, of course, I'm not advocating that you share these exact words. It doesn't have to be this exact language. But there's a concern that some have changed the gospel in an attempt 
to make the gospel more to our liking or to make it easier to share or easier to hear. Years ago, there was a very well-known pastor who wrote a book on love and hell. And about the book, the publisher writes, Rob Bell is the most vibrant, central religious leader of the millennial generation. Now in his book, Love Wins, Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived, Bell addresses one of the most controversial issues of faith, the afterlife, arguing that a loving God would never sentence human souls to eternal suffering. With searing insight, Bell puts hell on trial. And his message is decidedly optimistic. Eternal life doesn't start when you die. It starts right now, and ultimately love wins. You see what Rob Bell has done here is try to make the gospel gentler. And in the process, he's just lost the gospel altogether. Since when were we the ones to put God and the Holy Scriptures on trial? Since when were we the ones to be the arbitrators? When were we the ones to claim a higher authority than God and his word? Well, the thesis of of Bell's book is that there is no hell, that a loving God would never send anyone there. If Bell is teaching that hell is empty and you can reject Jesus and still be saved, he's opposing the gospel and the biblical teaching of Jesus Christ. He's preaching a different gospel, one that doesn't save. Now, I could go through a whole set of lists on God's wrath or on judgment. Let me, just, let me just read a few verses here in Matthew chapter 10. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Revelation 21, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, of course, there's passages even like the one we're reading today in Romans that talks about God's wrath. Now, church, if we try to make a gospel, which gospel simply means the good news about Jesus Christ, which saves, if we try to make up a gospel according to our man-centered belief of what we think God should be and should do, we end up losing the gospel and we're actually unloving to our neighbors when we share that false gospel. As his ambassadors, it's a title that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As his ambassadors, God forbid, that we would presume the authority to change God's message. Ambassadors of Christ, we go forward with the unchanged gospel. We take effort to share it accurately and communicate the good news, all of the good news. It's the bad news that makes the good news good in the first place. We're not the authors of the gospel. We're simply the messengers. We're the heralds. We're, we're taking the baton and we're from God and we're taking it to others. Now consider the alternative. Consider a distortion of the gospel to a more, more gentler version. It's actually unspeakably unkind for those of us who call ourselves Christians and yet distort and deceive people with false doctrine. We come up with a man-centered edition of the gospel to make it sound better to unbelieving ears. But friends, we never want to see anyone culturally converted to Christ. We want to see people born again in Christ Jesus. This man-centered gospel is infiltrating churches everywhere. Now, one of my favorite uh, eras of church history, so I love history, studied history in 
university, studied church history in graduate school, in seminary, and probably my favorite era is 19th century Scotland. I love what God did in that century in Scotland. So some amazing pastors, people I've quoted before, people like Robert Murray McShane, people like his best friend Andrew Bonar and Horatius Bonar, their mentor Thomas Chalmers. These were amazing pastors who loved Jesus and their churches we in some ways try to model after. We love seeing the people of Redeemer shepherded and we also even in Pastor Scott and Angela's example of sending people to do gospel work. Or like last week, having Pastor Alvin here as we sent him out and others to plant a Tagalog-speaking church. These pastors in, in 19th century Scotland sent out the best. Alexander Duff to India. David Livingstone to Africa. Mary Slessor to Nigeria. And perhaps my favorite, John G. Patton to the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. But a few years ago... Uh, one Scottish member of our church sent me a video, a video of a current Scottish pastor preaching. And just over a century later, it's hard to find the gospel preached in Scotland. In the message that I watched, the minister actually articulated the good news of the gospel quite, quite, quite well. But rather than preaching it as a message of salvation, he called Christians everywhere to reject this gospel he called it outdated, invalid. It was shocking. Now, the problem the pastor gave was that the gospel was an obstacle to evangelism, to sharing our faith. And here's the reason. It's because when we share, we're telling people that our sins demand a blood sacrifice. He continues in the sermon and says he's almost embarrassed by this theology and that it's immoral, as if it was good in previous generations, but not anymore. And he ended the sermon with this church. This is a theological argument that no longer works today and damages the church. Now what he's saying is all this talk of wrath and all this talk of judgment is so distasteful. It doesn't work today. So let's change the gospel message to what works to make us feel good. But church, the gospel is not ours to change. The Bible's not ours to tamper with. We don't get to change it. We don't get to be the authority of what's true and what's right. When we change the gospel, we lose the gospel. If the wrath of God isn't coming, then why on earth did Jesus come to earth? If there is no wrath, why did Jesus come to earth to die on earth? Why did he die on a cross to bear God's wrath? For us. Well, for God to be perfectly holy and just, it means that his most righteous response to our sin is wrath and judgment. Now, friends, the problem is not just that we're sinners. In Romans 1, 2, and 3, we see that God's wrath is upon us. And when God's wrath is upon us, we need to find a way of escape. Pagans in the ancient Near East, even they believed in propitiation. They offered the gods offerings so that they could appease the gods. How? Well, it could be food to sacrifice. It could be their wealth. At times, it was even their children. This is how immoral they were. But for Christians, this placating, or more so the propitiation of God's holy wrath is done for us out of God's great love for us and out of care for his glory. Now, did you notice in the beginning of verse 25 how God propitiated his holy wrath. 
how Jesus did this? Well, God the Father actually put him forward. It's John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God initiated this act. And it wasn't something trite that was offered. It was the blood that flowed from Emmanuel's veins which satisfied God's wrath. His shed blood was the payment. Now, the blood sacrifice of Jesus is what the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. The word for propitiation refers to the mercy seat. This was a gold plate which covered Israel's Ark of the Covenant, this most holy of holies. It was in the tabernacle. This is the portable temple that Israel would carry around with them as they wandered through the wilderness. It's interesting that one time a year, one day a year, the high priest would do something interesting on the Day of Atonement. He would enter into the Holy of Holies to atone for Israel's sins. He'd first sacrifice a family in the outer courtyard or sacrifice for his family an animal to cover his and his family's sins. And then, and only then, would he, would he come and offer a second animal and he would take that animal's blood, he would go into the Holy of Holies, go to the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top, and he would sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat. Now, why did he do this? Well, inside the Ark of the Covenant, one of the things you'd find is God's law, the Ten Commandments, the law that every person had broken. So what happens when the blood is sprinkled on top of the Ark of the Covenant, on the top of the mercy seat, well, instead of seeing our sinfulness in breaking the law, God sees the blood of that innocent animal there on the mercy seat. Now, of course, we know that that blood didn't ultimately take away sin, but it pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the mercy seat for his people. Jesus is the very place where God's wrath was ultimately satisfied. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that incredible? What a beautiful picture. Well, 15 years ago, in the weeks leading up to moving here to the Arabian Peninsula to be a part of planting this church, we were visiting a friend's house, and we noticed in their house a small little book on their coffee table. We picked it up, and we asked about it, and our friend Kevin said, just take that copy with you. It will change your life. And we did, and it did, and it has profoundly affected and impacted our lives. So let me just read a couple quotes by Milton Vincent, who wrote the book, A Gospel Primer for Christians. Let me read these two quotes on the very subject of God's wrath. Just listen. Listen to the beauty of God's propitiation for us. The gospel reminds me first that what I actually deserve from God is a full cup churning with the torments of his wrath. This is a cup that would be mine to drink if I were given what I deserve each day. With this understanding in mind, I see that to be handed a completely empty cup from God would be cause enough for infinite gratitude. If there were merely the tiniest drop of blessing contained in that otherwise empty cup, I should be blown away by the unbelievable kindness of God toward me. That God, in fact, has given me a cup that is full of every spiritual blessing in Christ, and this without the slightest admixture of wrath, leaves me truly dumbfounded with inexpressible joy. 
As for my specific earthly circumstances of plenty or want, I can see them always as infinite improvements on the hell I deserve. Isn't that beautiful? Here's, here's one, one more. I can't stop it at one. Here's another quote. When I look at any circumstances that God appoints me, that God apportions me, I am first grateful for the wrath I am not receiving in that moment. The empty part of the cup never looked so good. Second, I'm grateful for the blessings that are given to me instead of his wrath. Life's blessings, however small, always appear exceedingly precious when viewed against the backdrop of the wrath I deserve. This two-layered gratitude disposes my heart to give thanks in all things, and it also lends a certain intensity to my giving of thanks. Such a gospel-generated gratitude glorifies God, continues or contributes to peace of mind, and keeps my foot from the path of foolishness and ruin. Oh, Christian friend, how is your heart today? How is your heart? Are you, are you experiencing inexpressible joy at the salvation that God has given you? Are you thankful for God's deliverance from his wrath? Are you thankful for the sweet gifts that he's given you, however small or however big they are? Are you thankful for your salvation? I want you to consider this morning how this idea of propitiation is actually a fuel for worship. I want you to see how rich theology is a fuel for our worship of our King. Oh, Christian friend, are you rejoicing that your final destination is heaven? We read of God's transporting us, or we sang of it, of God's transporting us to heaven. Are we thankful for another day of new morning mercies, that God woke us up this morning to gather together with God's people. Are we thankful that we can even gather like this here in the center of the Middle East? I meet so many people who visit for the first time who say, I didn't know a church like this existed out here. We know that there are more churches than us here, but we're thankful that we have the privilege of meeting here. Do we take this meeting for granted? Are we thankful that out of 8 billion people in the world, somehow in God's providence, we heard the good news of Jesus Christ? Consider who first told you about Jesus. Consider the first Bible you ever had or the first words that you read. Instead of wrath, you were given grace. Even hearing this gospel today is God's grace to you as a believer. And if you're not yet a believer, it is God's grace to you that you're hearing this on this April day. And are we thankful that instead of receiving a, a full cup of God's wrath, or even just an empty cup like Milton Vincent said, we have a cup that's overflowing. We get a cup overflowing with God's blessings, spiritual gifts to serve the church, the privilege of praying to God. And God actually listens to us. He hears us. He answers prayers. We have access to his word. We have friends in the Lord. We have peace in our hearts. We have a voice to sing. We have a place to live, a place to witness. Oh, friends, we can rejoice. The Lord has been kind to us even in our darkest trials. He's infinitely more kind to us than we deserve. Well, I said propitiation should be a fuel for our worship. Propitiation should also be a fuel for us to love one another within the church. So I don't even have this in my notes, but this is great. Ashish read this earlier today in 1 John 
Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. But I want you to hear verse 11. Listen to this. Verse 9 and 10 again. In this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then verse 10. And this is love, not only that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Okay, we read that, but listen to the next verse. Listen to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, so that's propitiation. God has taken away the wrath that was due us. If God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's verse 11. Isn't that beautiful? God has loved us through the propitiation of his wrath. So then we as a church, we as Christians, we go forth in loving one another. So propitiation ought to be a fuel for our worship of God, but propitiation ought to be a fuel too that we within the church love one another. That the overflow of God's love to us overflows back onto others. Now that's incredible, friends. I know it's a big word, but I hope that you can see all in that word propitiation. It's the fuel for worship and it's our fuel for unity. It's our fuel for loving one another. It's the fuel for us to forgive one another when people sin against us. It's how we are fueled to be patient to one another, to give away and put away unrighteous anger, to put away lusts of the flesh, to serve one another, to care for one another. I could go on and on, but I have three more points. I promise these three points will be much shorter than propitiation, but we shall move on. Number two, a demonstration. A demonstration. We see faith mentioned twice, verse 25, verse 26. We'll pick that back up in the fourth Point, but I want us to look at the second half of verse 25 and the beginning of verse 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we've talked about the first part there. Here's what I want us to look at. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Okay, let's... let's Stop there. We see the phrase, this was to show God's righteousness in verse 25. And then we see an almost identical statement in verse 26. What was to show God's righteousness? Well, it was as verse 25 says, because in his divine forbearance, he, meaning God, passed over former sins. Now, what does that mean? Ultimately... That the death of Christ silenced any slander against God. God's patience and judgment was actually used as an argument against God's goodness. Here's how it played out. In the Old Testament, God delayed judgment, which caused some to argue that God wasn't perfect, that God wasn't perfectly just. For how can a holy and good God allow such violence and such sin go unpunished? Christ's death showed God's righteousness. It shows us that ultimately the sacrifices of the Levitical system in the Old Testament didn't save. That's why they had to keep sacrificing year after year after years because they ultimately didn't satisfy God's wrath. But it also shows, as Tim Keller has written, God in his patience and deferred payment on those sins, the sacrifices and rituals of the Old Testament were only and always placeholders pointing to Christ. They did not really pay the debts. God was accepting Abraham, Moses, David, and all the Old Testament saints when they repented and trusted in his mercy, but he accepted them on the basis of the future work of Christ. You, you see what he's saying here? God postponed 
final judgment, which made God appear in the moment unjust. But it was only for a time. God, through the cross of Christ, shows, or you could say demonstrates, God's justice. God didn't let these sins go unpunished out of ignorance or any injustice. It just wasn't yet time. John Stott writes, For the cross was a demonstration or public revelation as well as an achievement. It not only accomplished the propitiation of God and the redemption of sinners, it also vindicated the justice of God. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Now, former sins aren't referring to former sins before conversion, but before the new age of salvation. It doesn't mean that God failed to punish sins before Christ, but that God postponed the full penalty due to his sins, due to sins in the Old Testament. Because if you think about it from the flood in Noah's time all the way up until Christ's death, you could have argued, well, where's God's justice? God's reputation as righteous and holy was open to slander. John Murray explains, in these generations gone by God did not visit men with wrath, commensurate with their sins. In this sense, there was a bypassing or overlooking of their sins. This bypassing is not to be equated with remission. Suspension or of punishment is not equivalent to forgiveness. But the forbearance exercised in past ages tended to obscure in the apprehension of men the inviolability of God's justice. Forbearance was liable to be interpreted as indifference to the claims of justice and suspension of judgment as evocation and remission of the same. Now, I'll end this point with a plea here. Christ's death on the cross was an answer to those critics, and God provided an answer through the shed blood of Jesus. Yes, it's a substitutionary sacrifice, but it's also a vindication of the justice of God. God is righteous. Now, in the first point, we saw that God satisfied his wrath through Christ. And now, here we see that God is righteous. He is a righteous judge through Christ. But in his divine forbearance, there was a delay. It was the patience of God. So, friends, if you're here and you don't yet follow Christ, I want to now plead with you. God's patience is a grace to you. Do you see that God's patience is a grace? He was patient in the Old Testament times leading up to Christ, and he's patient today leading up to the return of Christ Jesus. Jesus died, and he rose from the dead, and he's alive today, and he'll come to you with open arms. His arms are open now if you would repent and turn to him. Kids, tweens, and teens, I talk to you most weeks. This message is it's for you. It's for all of us. None of us are too young, none of us are too old to see Christ's open arms and to embrace him by faith. Friends, we're not guaranteed tomorrow, so turn to Christ today. So, propitiation, demonstration, I told you we're, we're speeding things up here. Number three, we see substitution. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. Okay, I want, I want to look at those two words for a moment. How can Jesus be both just and a justifier? How can this be true? What does it mean of our, our God that he is both? Well, then this is beautiful because while God's wrath calls for justice, we see that God is just and that he doesn't let sin go unpunished. The cross comes, but this is stunning. 
He's just, but he's also the justifier because it's Christ's death itself which reconciles sinners with a perfect God. Believers can be declared righteous without God contradicting his own character. God is both just and he is the justifier at the same time. This is the glory of grace. God must judge us, but the wonder of grace is that instead of judging us as believers, he places that judgment on Jesus. So he is just and the justifier. Well, friends, this is incredible. This is the glory of grace. That instead of foregoing his justice, God turns it on himself. Again, Tim Keller writes, and listen to this, The wonder of the cross is that in the very same stroke, it satisfies both the love of God and the justice of God. At the very same moment, it shows us that God is both the judge who cares enough about his world to set standards and hold us accountable to them, and the justifier who has done everything necessary to forgive and restore us. He is a father worth having, and he is a father we can have. The cross is where gloriously and liberatingly we see that he is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Some long quotes today, but some beautiful ones, and I hope helpful for us to understand what Paul is saying in the book of Romans. In the cross, God's love is shown and God's wrath is satisfied at the same time. The cross displays both. But in order for us to enjoy God's love and his pardon from wrath, we must respond with faith. That's the fourth and final point today. Number four, conviction. We must be convicted of our sins and have faith in Jesus. Verse 25, this propitiation is received by faith. Verse 26, God is both the just and justifier of the one who has faith. Oh, it's good news that we don't have to be good enough to be saved. We don't work for it. Maybe some of us today, maybe you feel this way. Maybe you feel like you're too bad to be loved by God. Maybe you feel like you've been too bad to be loved by a good God. Your sins are too great. You might say, Pastor Dave, you don't know what I did last year or 20 years ago or even last night. God would never accept me. You don't know my secrets. No, the scriptures tell us otherwise. That God saved us while we were yet sinners. Some of us are confronted maybe in our pride, aren't we? Some of us actually want to work for our salvation. Some of us, we look through those Ten Commandments, and if I ask you if you're saved by God, you tell me, yes, I, I, I'm not a murderer. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't done those bad things. I'm better than that person over there. I haven't done real sin. So yeah, I, I, there's, there's, there's a pride. Baptism doesn't save you. Church membership doesn't save you. Serving on a ministry team doesn't save you. Being a good person and helping someone out doesn't save you. Keeping good thoughts doesn't save you because ultimately we can't be good enough. One sin against the holy God brings about his justice. Maybe others of us are just apathetic. Maybe you're sitting here today and you say, Pastor Dave, well, no, actually I'm not trying to earn salvation. I could care less and I'm living my life just however I want to live. Maybe you're just apathetic. Maybe you think that tomorrow will come or the next day will come. Maybe you'll get to this age and then you'll finally consider whether to embrace Christ or not. But friends, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. 
We're not guaranteed next year, next week, or the next day. So my word to you in any group that you find yourself is just to stop. Just to stop and hear this message. Jesus died to rescue sinners from the wrath of God by his blood sacrifice on the cross. He's risen from the dead, and each day that he keeps you alive is a day of mercy for you. Friend, by faith in Jesus, you're joined to him. His death is credited to you. Friend, stop looking at yourself. Stop looking to yourself and look to Christ. Be convicted of your sin. And by faith, rest on Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you put forward your own son, Jesus, as a propitiation for our sin. That it's through his blood that we can be saved. Father, thank you that your wrath was not poured on us, but on Christ Jesus. So thank you for your patience with us, for saving us, for redeeming us, for bringing us into a relationship with you. And Father, we pray that this rich doctrine, maybe this word that we didn't even know existed before today, propitiation, the satisfying of your wrath. Father, we pray that it would be a fuel for us as we worship. We pray that it would be a fuel for us as we go about our week. Would it be a fuel for how we love one another in this church because you have first loved us. Would we then go out and love each other and love the world? Oh, Father, we thank you. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Redeemer Church, these are joyous doctrines. I hope you can see how doctrine in theology and these rich portions of Paul's letter to the Romans is fuel for us to worship and to live faithfully. Well, let's respond to God's word in song. Please stand as we sing.